Hey, I'm Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. Today, I'm on the Cumberland Trail, just north of Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm actually on Signal Mountain, which is a very important uh, piece of Civil War history for you Civil War buffs. You can look that up if you want. Uh, this is where the Yankees were as they're attacking the Southerners on the other side of the river up on um, Lookout Mountain. But another story for another day. I actually came up here on purpose because I needed to get to the Appalachian Mountains. Where I live in Atlanta, we don't have a lot of diversity of fishes and amphibians and insects in our lakes, rivers, and streams. Up here though, we have the highest biodiversity of any area in North America. Amphibians, fish, uh, insects, mollusks, it's very strange. But in Atlanta, we tend to have shorter rivers and they run down towards the Gulf of Mexico, just east of me near the airport. The rivers pick up and they start flowing to the um, Atlantic Ocean. But here, for some strange reason, there is tremendous biodiversity. Now, the evolutionists, of course, would say, well, these mountains are millions of years older than other places. Therefore, these species have had longer to evolve. That's why there's more species. But that doesn't explain why in some young places in the world, there are lots of species, and in some other old places in the world, there are very few species. Just saying. But it's also strange because other mountain regions of the world don't have a high biodiversity like this. But then again, other mountain chains in the world, most of them anyway, are geologically young. This is a geological puzzle why the Earth all of a sudden started producing mountains. We're talking about the Andes, uh, the Himalayas, the Alps, the, the Rockies. A lot of major mountain chains in the world are very young geologically. Well, these are the mountains that rose at the end of Noah's flood and helped drain the waters off the continents. But the Appalachians, these are early flood rocks. These, th these formed when North America smashed into Europe and Africa. Okay, fine. That was early in the flood. These are very early uh, sedimentary layers here. We're talking Paleozoic sort of stuff and, you know, really, really, uh, I don't know, trilobites and things like that. Paleozoic material versus maybe the Cenozoic material, the things you're familiar with, like bears and, and squirrels. This is old ocean bottom material. Again, another subject for another day. I'm just trying to put myself in context here. I love coming to streams. You notice a lot of my uh, biblical genetics episodes are near water because I love water. One of my jobs in college, every other semester, I worked for the state of Georgia in their environmental protection department. And we would go around the state looking at lakes and rivers and streams, usually polluted ones, but sometimes a nice pristine one like this. And we'd have a two-man team and we'd spend, I was like 1.5 hours, I don't remember what it was, X amount of time. And we'd pick, using tweezers, every single um, insect larva that we could find. So we're talking about caddisflies, mayflies, midges, um, stoneflies, dragonflies, um, the tapulidae, craneflies. I mean, all, all, the, all the larvae we could find. We put them in alcohol. And then in the wintertime, we'd sit in the lab and we'd look under a microscope and we'd sort them and, and try to identify down to the species level. We were doing that for long-term stream um, observation. So you can go take a water sample, and we would always take a water sample, the stream we went to, but that only tells you the water conditions at that instant. The thing is, living in the stream tell you a longer span, so we're able to assess how polluted a stream may or may not be based on what was living in it. And that was a lot of fun for a nerd like me. But something happened. I, I don't think I've ever said this anecdote on my show before, but if I have, just forgive me. Maybe you haven't seen it. I was sitting in in the lab one winter and I'd been staring at this, this these bowls of, of pickled insects for hours and the alcohol fumes are coming up and my throat's getting sore my eyes are turning red and I'm like oh this is a drudge and the guy next to me 
I won't say his name because he might still be kicking. But the guy next to me, all of a sudden he starts hooting and hollering. He said, I found a new species. It's like, really? He goes, yeah, this mayfly has three hairs on its four coxa. What? Three hairs, not two hairs. And you know it's a new species because the front appendage of this mayfly larva has an extra hair? And I'm thinking to myself, you don't know how frequently this appears. You don't know if these things can hybridize with other mayflies of similar species. You don't know anything about this and you're claiming it's a new species already? Ah, this is picking up on a great divide amongst taxonomists. See, I, as a natural iconoclast, I am called a lumper. I throw things together. I say, okay, they look similar enough, they're the same species, but he was the definition of a splitter. He wanted to split things into as many species as possible. Honestly, from a nerdy perspective, I enjoy those kind of discussions, but from a, a top-level biological discussion, no, we're talking about the created kinds being fractionated into what we call species, but a lot of them really aren't species. Now, my last episode, we talked about um, Darwin's finches and how we have just a few finch species on this one particular island, and the species persists over time even though they can hybridize. Interesting, because the intermediate birds might not necessarily be very good at, at this specific niche and getting the food out of that one niche better than the other birds. Resource partitioning is a hotly debated, um, very uh, difficult to pin down issue within ecology, but it's something that I use in my definition of species. Because in my mind, we've got the biblical created kinds, after the flood to the ones on the ark, or the ones that survived the floods to the ones not on the ark, they start refilling the earth again, and based on the genetic diversity in those kinds, they start getting fine-tuned into specific niches. So polar bears are really good at hunting on ice and would be very bad at hunting in a forest. Brown bears do really well in the forest and they would never be able to sneak up on a seal in uh, landing on ice in the Arctic. So we have a partitioning based on the environment of those bears. We have the ability of mutations to change things, like I think polar bear fur is probably a mutation, but we also have the ability of genetic recombination to bring up brand new traits that were never associated with one another before. In several of my talks, maybe on this show, but definitely on creation.com and some of my articles on creation.com, I use an illustration of dogs. I said, what if God created uh, tall muscular dogs like a mastiff only? Well, he could have hidden in those genes small skinny dog genes and maybe it's rare maybe it creates you know 10,000 dogs and only two of them have these rare small skinny genes and they're not even near each other so maybe many 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 generations later all of a sudden a dog is born that's small and skinny he's like where did he come from well God programmed that into the initial genome we just didn't see it for a long time but I also pointed out you could have recombination that if those if the height and the weight muscularity genes are near each other, if they recombine, all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, you can get maybe a tall skinny dog like a wolfhound or a small muscular dog like a, bull, a bulldog that God did not initially create, but he created the capacity for them to appear through genetic combination. Oh, so we're talking about fishes. We're talking about birds. We're talking about amphibians. We're talking about all sorts of different things that look like they can reproduce, but they don't tend to, or when they do, maybe the hybrids don't do as well because they're not as adept at getting that one niche that the specialist is. There's another thing I like to talk about. I call it genetic pigeonholing. That is, 
as a group of organisms gets further and further refined and further and further adept and they adapt at getting at one particular food source or one mating strategy or one uh, way of surviving over time, they'll lose the genes for the other strategies. They'll get pigeonholed genetically and they'll lose the ability to adapt backwards. They'll lose the ability to, to evolve left and right. They'll be specified and that's something that Darwin didn't quite realize, I think you as a creationist, I hope you can realize this, that as specialization happens, the ability to change further gets reduced. Ah, so we can have fast change in the beginning, and then Darwin observes slow change. Well, yeah, Darwin, because you're 4,000 years after the giant speciation events that produce all your species. Hmm. Something else I want to point out to you creationists. Um, I know that a lot of us, myself included, we tend to say, oh, if two things can reproduce, they're the same created kind. I'm a little leery on that now because what happens if two things can't reproduce? That doesn't mean they're not the same created kind. In fact, if they can't reproduce, there's all sorts of reasons why they can't. Maybe they have a great height difference, like Chihuahuas and Great Danes. They cannot reproduce. There's a height difference. It's physically impossible. There are dragonflies that if they try to, they look similar, but if they try to mate, the reproductive organs will lock together and both the male and the female will die in copulatory mode. They'll die locked together. So I think that was probably one created kind that later on they lost the ability to reproduce. In the animals I studied in graduate school, corals in the Caribbean, there's only three species of this one genus called a cropera. But in the, in the Pacific Basin, Indo-Pacific Ocean, there's, I don't know, 800 species, 600 species. I lost count. There's tons and tons and tons of species and they're very similar sometimes and very different other times. And sometimes weird ones can reproduce with each other that you wouldn't expect. And sometimes things that look very similar can't. Well, in that diverse group of species, there are egg sperm recognition factors. And if the head of the sperm doesn't have the right enzymes, it can't get into the egg. And so there is a species barrier right there. And given a diversity of egg sperm recognition factors, given the potential for recombination in those genes or mutation happening in those genes, we can have reproductive barriers arising after creation. So just because two things can't interbreed doesn't mean they, they're not the same created kind. Fair enough? All right, now let's shift focus to a brand new paper. This is by um, Meyer et al. They're looking at fish in Africa, in the Rift Lakes of Africa. The title of the paper is Cycles of Fusion and Fission Enabled Rapid Parallel Adaptive Radiations in African Cichlids. Ooh, what's a cichlid? It's a fish. Uh, they're very common in the aquarium trade. If you have a tank or you know someone who has it, if you've ever been to uh, most uh, public aquaria, science museums, will have a tank of cichlids, all the different colors and stripes and things like that living together in one tank. Um, but you've probably eaten cichlid. Have you ever had tilapia? Um, I'm not a fan of tilapia because in the, um, basically I'm a, as a marine biologist, I'm a fish snob. Yes, very much so. And in the early days of tilapia, uh, propagation and as they're trying to market these, well, the conditions weren't always optimal and that fish takes on the flavor of the water it's grown in. And I got a couple of really muddy tilapia. I mean, they literally tasted like dirt. I was like, oh, this is gross. And I don't eat tilapia anymore. And I think the quality's probably improved a lot over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I hold a grudge. <laughs> I'm not eating that fish. But tilapia is a cichlid. And in Africa, there's a huge number of cichlid species. And this is um, something evolutionists like to talk about, but I think this is better evidence for creation than anything else. So this group, uh, Myra et al., 
they looked at um, the genomes of a whole bunch of, of species. They sequenced 464 fish genomes. That's not 464 species. Um, just in Lake Victoria, they got 120 different species though. Just in that one lake, 120 different cichlid species. And now for the first time, we can look at them genetically and see how close they are, how far apart they are. And why is it that in Lake Victoria, in Lake Edward, in Lake Kiva, there are similar species that look a little different. There are algae-eating species. There are species that uh, specialize on eating the Chironomus midge larvae that eat the algae. There are fish that specialize in nipping off the scales of other fish. There are fish that eat fish, and there's the top-level ones that live out in the, the deep water, and they eat all the fish, those top-level carnivores. So we have different, what are called trophic levels. We have this, this pyramid of the algae, and then the algae eaters on the bottom, and then the, the, the top-level predators on the top. And they're all cichlids. But the cichlids in one lake look different than the ones in the other lake. So the top-level predator might have different striping pattern, different color. Or the algae eater in this lake looks different than the algae eater in that lake. So we have similar species who have arose, and I like to use the word evolve, that they have arisen to target specific niches in different lakes, but they arose independently. Oh, that's really cool. But what else were they able to show was that it looks like a um, two different lineage of cichlids intermated and gave rise to all these other species. We're talking like 700 species in the Lake Victoria region supergroup, they call it. 700 cichlid species in these multiple lakes. Lake Victoria's got 500 just alone. But it looks like the Congolese uh, lineage, and I think that's from the Congo Basin, which is not the Nile Basin where the Rift Lakes are. The Congo drains to the Atlantic. The Nile drains, of course, to the Mediterranean. But anytime you have two river basins, well, they're going to share a common border. And very often you can, you know, go to one place and you can see a little stream over here flowing to the west and a stream over there flowing to the east. Well, one's going to one river basin, one's going to the other. It's really easy if a flood comes for fish to mix or if a, a, a bird flies from one pond to the next, it can carry fish eggs with it. There's tons of ways to get fish from different basins into the other basin. But it looks like what happened was the two major lineages merged and produced a lot of generic sort of fish. And then they radiated in, call, in what's called the Edward radiation, so Lake Edward and a lot of other lakes, into all these different types of fishes I just described. And they radiated into the Victoria Lake. Now, Lake Victoria is not on the main line of the others. It's a little bit to the east. It's a big, pretty shallow lake, and it's got 500 species in it. But Lake Victoria dried up at one point. Yeah, it dried up during like the Ice Age. Now they say 16,000 years ago. I don't care what their number is. It's a recent drying. So Lake Victoria was dry ground and then climate change and it refilled. And those 500 species, they say evolved in less than 16,000 years. Wait a minute. You know, the evolutionists love to say that we are hyper-evolutionists, that we believe in more evolution than even the evolutionists believe in. But you know, the evolutionists believe and 500 species arising in a very short amount of time, 500 species that are distinct from one another, that have different behaviors, different looks, different strategies, they are as different species as you can expect a species to be. And they're recent. So how does this work? Well, we have a created kind with a, a high adaptive potential. 
We have, they're front loaded with a lot of genetic diversity, which a lot of it would have been lost at the flood, but fish don't have to be on the ark. You'd have a lot of fish surviving the flood, but you're still gonna lose a lot of fish, a lot of diversity, and whatever's left over, all these fish are gonna hybridize. You're gonna get lots of recombination and brand new traits are gonna pop out of the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden you have a fish with a mouth that is very good at nabbing little midge larvae on a rock or eating algae or eating the scales of other fish or eating other fish. And it happened in parallel multiple times. I wanna read you a quote from a, a recent article in Journal of Creation. This is by uh, Hennigan, Galuza, and Lansdale. Interface systems and continuous environmental tracking as a design model for symbiotic relationships. Now, if you're familiar with my views on continuous environmental tracking, this is the view of uh, Dr. Randy Galuza, who's the head of uh, the Institute for Creation Research. I love half of it and I dislike the other half. His organism-centric biology is brilliant. His, he points out that organisms can react to the environment based on the sensors that God gave them. The environment's not doing anything, it's the organisms that are doing things. And they can uh, react, they can, and there's all sorts of um, genetic things that will actually change the genes or influence um, inheritance over time. There's an organism specific internal to the organism. Where I diverge from Dr. Gluza and so, several others is their insistence that natural selection is not a real thing. I, I simply don't believe that. And my last episode on Darwin's finches, I, I hit it pretty hard. Natural selection killed off so many of the birds, only ones that survived could do this, and they're the ones who genetically propagated later on. Well, same is true here. We've got all these fishes. These fish can hybridize. Hobbyists have hybridized them like crazy. But as I pointed out in the last episode also, it's a similar species that can hybridize. The least dissimilar species, the ones that are genetically more distinct, the ones from different lakes or different branches on the fish tree, they're the ones that don't hybridize well or at all. It's the more genetically similar are, the more likely they can hybridize. Remember, just because two things can't hybridize doesn't mean they're not in the same created kind because reproductive barriers can arise. But this is what um, Hennigan, Galusa, and Lansdale said. They're talking about systems ecology, and this is what I've been talking about for, for two episodes now. Systems ecology is a bit contentious. It's very difficult to pin it down because ecology is hard to put numbers on things because God's creation is really complicated. But they're actually saying this is what the evolutionists believe, and I don't think they believe this, but this is a very interesting quote. They say, for example, competitive relationships are not considered energy efficient because some of the precious energy required for life, e.g. foraging, mating, or thermoregulation, is used to compete for resources. Therefore, natural selection can drive competitors into more energy efficient interactions, such as microhabitat separation, e.g. stream insects inhabiting substrate while others live at the surface. Temporal separation, e.g. hawks hunting by day and owls by night. Resource partitioning, e.g. Galapagos finch beak diversification, allowing for a variety of seed resources for a diversity of finches. And mutualisms, lichenized fungi and or algae cyanobacteria cooperating as one organism. Now, I love that kind of stuff. I, I, I really get into resource partitioning and energy utilization. Well, because I'm trained as an ecologist. Even though I left that in, to get into genetics, it still sticks with me and I still have a lot of coursework and a lot of thought along those lines. And if you apply that to created kinds, species should naturally arise out of a intermixing hybrid population. Specialization should be the natural result of survival over time of organisms because the one that can get it, that seed, 
If the other one can't get to it, the one that can get that seed is the one that's going to survive. And so what we see is, in the finches and now in these African cichlids, parallel species arising independently based on the same set of environmental conditions in different places. So I'm not expecting a new species to arise that has a different, um, a different niche in that lake because the niches in the different lakes have been filled in parallel as if all the different possible survival strategies are there or else one of them would have figured out another survival strategy. Also interesting, um, the, the Ethiopian government and people have built a massive new dam. It's called the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and it is going to create the largest lake in Ethiopia. Currently, the largest lake is Lake Tana. It's a uh, very shallow, maybe 15 meters deep. It's, uh, I think, 84 by 56 kilometers. It's basically a, a big saucer. It's a big pan. It's a shallow, wide lake, and there's only one species of cichlid in that, uh, the, um, the Nile perch. It's only one species of cichlid. But now they're building another lake downstream. And this lake is much larger and much, much, much deeper. And instead of being round, they're actually they're filling up a river valley, a very deep river valley. So it's going to have a very irregular coastline. We're going to have shallow water, deep water. We're going to have inlets. We're going to have bays. We're going to have a lot more different potential niches. So here's a question. This is a really interesting natural laboratory. What's going to happen to the fish in that lake over time? Are we going to get a burst of speciation? Maybe not, because there's only one current species to feed that lake, and it doesn't have that much potential uh, that genetic diversity, so it might not explode. But what if it does hybridize with another one? Or, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what happens over time and how fast it happens. And I'm kind of hoping someone's going to dump some cichlids in that lake that don't belong there. And uh, well, I mean, it's all in the Nile River Delta, or the river system. So if they take a cichlid from one lake and put it in another lake, well, maybe we'll get a burst of speciation again. I don't know. This is really cool. Just stay tuned. It might take 50 years. It might take 500 years. Who knows how long it might take. But this lake is going to be different than anything else in the area. What's going to happen to the cichlids? Oh, very, very, very interesting. I'm going to end up with a couple of quotes from the Meyer et al. paper. Listen to this. They said, multiple cycles of lineage fusion. Oh, okay. So massive different lineages can fuse. They can hybridize even though they're very different. Multiple cycles of lineage fusion by hybridization and diversification led to increasingly rapid and extensive radiations of cichlid fishes, including the explosive evolution of 500 Lake Victoria species across four trophic levels in 16,000 years. That's their words. They use words rapid, extensive, and explosive. So who believes in hyper-evolution, Mr. Evolutionist? It's your guys. I'm perfectly willing to say this is an example of creationism. If it's beautifully in our models, you're the people who are struggling because Darwin taught you that species, sorry, I didn't mean to point my finger at you, that's, that's rude, but Darwin taught that species change very slowly over millions of years. Yeah, no, they don't. They change very rapidly and then they stabilize. That's a big difference between you and me. Um, another quote from them, a monophyletic radiation, monophyletic means uh, from one source population, a monophyletic radiation composed of hundreds of species with high levels of sympatry. Sympatry, again, uh, patry is fatherhood, sim is together. It's um, high levels of, of uh, pulling from the same ancestral gene pool. 
And that's what we see in Lake Victoria. High levels of speciation from a hybrid but commingled gene pool. That's our recipe right there for rapid speciation after Noah's flood. So what do you think about that, creationist? Yeah, have you thought really hard about speciation? Have you thought really hard about how we get all this diversity of life on this earth soon after Noah's flood and how the species arose from a God-created uh, system? Well, I have, and I think we've got some really good answers. In fact, I think we've got better answers than the evolutionists do. Send me a note there in the, in the comments section. I, I want to hear what you think. Either way, that's all for now. I'm actually, um, my feet have slipped into the water, and even though I have waterproof boots, it's really cold, and my foot's starting to get cold. So I'm going to cut off here, go back up to my car, warm up my foot, and let you think on speciation, Noah's flood, and God's created diversity. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to help with biblical genetics, the single best thing that you can do is like, share, and talk it up with your friends. And for those of you who are financial supporting me, I really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to help contribute, there'll be some links in the show notes. Thank you.